and give a talk. They're called in to explain themselves to the Council on Foreign Relations, not to the general public of their country. And the British version, international British version, are called the, the, the I shall call the Royal Institute for International Affairs. There's an Australian branch, Canadian branch, the branch in India, the old Commonwealth countries. They all have their branches, and we were all run the same way. And their technique was to bring in a socialized system. And socialism, by their own definition, is an elitist organization where the masses are organized the way they think that they should be organized and led by the elites. Back with more after this break. Got off with it. 
and in February was appointed by the President to the White House's Economic Recovery Advisory Board. Economic recovery, it says here, for whom? This is days after, days after the company uh, was accused of massive, massive tax evasion and fraud and so on. That's who Obama is. And he's helping the guy, one of the guys, one of the many ones that, uh, you know, paid him in the office. Out golfing with him. Remember these talks I give, I always put the links up on my site, cuttingthematrix.com, at the end of the show. And you can check it out for yourself. And I said a long time ago, when they started putting gunboats across the Great Lakes, these souped-up gunboats with uh, massive uh, caliber machine guns on them, and flotillas of them, in fact. And I've actually got photographs of some of them with special forces on them. Uh, that eventually they, these would be used during some kind of emergency to keep the people in. Well, you know what's coming up, supposedly, this uh, supposed uh, swine flu. And what happens during a, a, a scare even of a swine flu, and all they have to do is scare the bejesus out of the public, uh, show you some guys with uh, special suits on, carrying a stretcher, that's all they need to do, and people will flock, try and get out, you see. And under NATO, and all countries have signed NATO, um, the actual plans are to contain outbreaks of disease, uh, biochemical weaponry, um, nuclear fallout in, into the same area. Keep it contained. Says anybody who tries to escape from the containment areas to get shot on sight. And if whole groups try and get out to be bombed from the air, the CN gas, CS gas. That, that's the plans for NATO. But it's amazing, isn't it? This article here is from the Associated Press, Wednesday, August the 26th. This is Washington. A sleepy Montana checkpoint along the Canadian border that sees about three travelers a day will get $15 million, $15 million, three travelers a day, under President Barack Obama's economic stimulus plan. A government priority list ranked the project as marginal, but two powerful Democratic senators persuaded the administration to make it happen. The title of this is, by the way, it's Secret Process Benefits Pet Projects. Despite Obama's promises that the stimulus plan would be transparent and free of politics, uh, the government is handing out $720 million for border upgrades under a process that is both secretive, that's the words, secretive, and susceptible to political influence. So there's a political reason for this as well. Social policy through politics. Whatever they decree will simply be done at the border. They can change any rule that they want as they go along. This allowed low-priority projects such as the checkpoint in Whitetail, Montana, to skip ahead of more pressing concerns according to documents revealed to the Associated Press. A huge oversight committee has added the checkpoint project to its investigation into how the stimulus money is being spent. The top Republican on that committee, California's Representative Darrell Issa, sent a letter to Homeland Security Secretary Janet Napolitano on Wednesday questioning why some projects leapfrogged 
over others. It wasn't supposed to be that way. In 2004, Congress ordered <clears throat> Homeland Security to create a list updated annually of the most important repairs at checkpoints nationwide, but the Obama administration continued a Bush administration practice of considering other more subjective factors when deciding which projects get money. The results, it says, a border station in Napolitano's home state of Arizona is getting $199 million. I thought we were broke, eh? It's just incredible. Five times more than any other border station. The busy Nogales checkpoint has required repairs for years but was not rated amongst the neediest projects on the master list review by the AP. Napolitano credited her lobbying as Arizona governor for getting the project near the front of the line for funding under the Bush administration. All it needed was money, which the stimulus provided. A checkpoint in Laredo, Texas, which serves more than 55,000 travelers and 4,200 trucks a day, is rated amongst the government's highest priorities but was passed over for stimulus money. What they're doing is looking at the, those areas across Canada, mainly and the states, where people can literally walk through. It's all the small places now. They don't, this is something big's coming along here. You can tell something big's coming along. There's no doubt about it. And uh, as I say, there's one here in West Hope, North Dakota checkpoint. It serves about 73 people a day, 73 a day, that's all. And it's among the lowest priority projects. It's said to get nearly $15 million for renovations. So you see, it's all the small places where people could slip through. They're trying to cover every base. When something really bad happens, crowds of people can't get through. That's what they're doing. For those who haven't figured it out. And there's a great article here. It's from The Telegraph. August the 26, 2009. It says, have you heard about the company that runs Britain? It inspects schools, trains our armed forces, helps protect our borders, maintains our nuclear weapons, runs our trains, and operates our prisons. By Graham Rudick. And it says here, most of the public will never have heard of CERCO, S-E-R-C-O, FTSE 100 company that does all of the above and more. Led by South African Chris Hyman, Circos are also about making money doing it, and today, underlined, it is proving one of the recession winners. Profits from the first six months of the year, one of the toughest the UK economy has faced for decades, jumped 33% to £83.4 million. Not bad, eh? Profits in the first six months. However, Serco's journey into the DNA of Britain's public infrastructure, like those of rival support service companies, Capita and Interserve, began before the recession arrived. All have benefited from the growing culture of outsourcing services under Labour government. They'll do it under any government now. And Serco expects this trend to continue as a gaping hole in the public finances forces the government to cut back. What they're doing is public-private. Remember what Carl Quigley said? The world is to be run by a new feudal system comprised of the CEOs of international corporations. It's here. That, that's, what it, that's what all that public-private stuff is about. 
that all these companies are interlocked in a pyramid structure with a, a capstone on the top so they, so they make sure that they all do what they're supposed to do. They're told to do from the top because all of these things are essential services, etc., right down to energy, controlling energy. That's all part of the sustainable development stuff, you see. Circo secured a record number of contracts in 2009, so far worth £4 billion, as its revenues climbed 30% to £1.95 billion. The deals include a contract to design, build and operate Boris Johnson's cycle hire stream for London and to operate two new prisons at Belmarsh in London and Maghill in Liverpool. Back with more of how the world really is after this break. Cutting Through the Matrix, continuing with an article from The Telegraph about one of the main companies that runs Britain. You see, we're not run by politicians. Politicians do what they're told by their masters in the new feudal system that Professor Carl clearly talked about. And this company, as I say, is called Circo, running jails and everything else. It says here, these come on top of Circo's existing services, which include operating London's Docklands Light Railway, running the Northern Rail and Mersey Rail train networks, providing the Ministry of Defence with air surveillance and control systems, and delivering infrastructure and intelligence to the UK Border Agency. Everything is done outside government. To complete the list, Circo also has a six-year contract with Ofsted, to run inspections in the Midlands at schools and further education colleges. Inspections, eh? In defense, the company is battling to win the right to run the Army Recruitment Program and already helps to train armed forces about using Britain's fleet of aircraft, such as the Chinook and Apache helicopters. In partnership with Lockheed Martin and Jacobs Engineering, Circle also manages the Atomic Weapons Establishment which provides and maintains Britain's atomic warheads. Revenues from civil government work increased 49% in the period, and a bullish circle expects this trend to continue, giving it even more control of Britain's infrastructure. The company estimates that local authorities have endured a £4 billion deficit in income for over the last two years as a result of the recession, and that by 2012, it will have revenues of £5 billion. So there you go. As I say, you see, uh, there's been a coup a long time ago. It was done by stealth, Fabian style. We adapt to all the little changes, and we hear little terms used occasionally. They first came out. I think Prince Charles was the first one to really push private-public partnerships, as he called them. And that was, that was really the, the, the announcement to the public for the first time. Something they've been doing quietly, but that was the first public announcement. And since then, it's been just a, a role. Because after all, you see, you've got to bypass democracy, as the Club of Rome said. And this is how they've been doing it. But all of these groups are all combined together with the bosses at the top. They seem independent of it, each other, but they're not. They're all going in one direction. It's a planned direction into what they call the New World Order, 
as Mr. Brown, the, the Prime Minister of Britain, called it at the G20 meeting. So that's really what's coming down. Now, I've mentioned that these Fabian socialists uh, always wanted to get rid of the poor, you see, because they run everything by economy. And they saw early on that, uh, that there was a lot of poor people, especially during the, the end of the Industrial Revolution, and they said there's simply too many for the work at hand, so they wanted to bring down the population. That's what socialism started as, not to help the workers, although they had to get the workers on board by promising them lots of stuff. But the real agenda, as you have talked about H.G. Wells, who worked for this organization and the Fabian Society and the Royal Institute for International Affairs, as he said, they have to bring in their utopia by eventually sterilizing the unfit, etc., and so did um, Lord, uh, George Bernard Shaw, a co-founder. And these guys were backed by the richest people on the planet. In fact, the Royal Institute for International Affairs was started up with the Cecil Rhodes Foundation with Rothschild as a co-partner, along with Cecil Rhodes, and then they merged with the Lord Milner Group. Lord Milner and all that group that he merged with were all bankers, and bankers' sons, international moneylenders. In the U.S., of course, they set up other families, and one of the prime families in Britain was the Rockefellers, who have probably more say in the direction of the U.S. than anybody, any politician uh, that's ever been or will be. And <clears throat> I've warned, too, about the vaccinations, because, you see, the big pharma companies that deal with inoculations and vaccinations were already in business before World War II with their laboratories and using certain, giving grants to universities to get data on certain outsourcing, you might say, which they then stole the patents of to make their various vaccines. But these were also the experts in bacterial and viral warfare. They still are. And they work closely with the official biowarfare institutes. Here's an article from Australia. This is from March 2002, March the 10th. And it's about a very important and famous person who's, got, who's showered with, has got accolades and titles galore heaped upon him for his supposed breakthroughs and vaccinations, etc. And his name was Sir McFarlane. Burnett, Burnett. It says Burnett Solution. This is what he planned, this guy, who, again, was there to help you with the vaccinations and things. This is the plan to poison Southeast Asia. World-famous microbiologist Sir McFarlane Burnett, the Nobel Prize winner revered as Australia's greatest medical research scientist, secretly urged the government to develop biological weapons for use against Indonesia, and other overpopulated countries of Southeast Asia. The revelation is contained in top-secret files declassified by the National Archives of Australia despite resistance from the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Now read the rest of this when I come back from this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. 
through the Matrix, talking about Sir McFarlane Burnett, uh, who's a top Nobel Prize winner. This is a guy who literally pioneered a lot of the work to do with vaccinations. And it's so odd because his prime concern, if you look into Wikipedia, etc., was on really not just what caused people to be have immune problems, but when you're into that kind of stuff, you're finding out how to cause immune problems. And his great desire was to reduce the population of what he called overcrowded countries. Because I want to say here that Sir McFarlane recommended in a secret report in 1947 that biological and chemical weapons should be developed to target food crops and spread infectious diseases. His key advisory role in biological warfare was uncovered by Canberra historian Philip Dorling in the National Archives in 1998. But by the way, uh, the same character, Sir McFarlane Burnett, uh, was over in Britain in World War II, working with the biowarfare establishment at Port and Downs. doesn't mention that here, I think, but that's a fact. That's also in Wikipedia. And it says here, his key advisory role on biological warfare was uncovered, etc. The department initially blocked release of the material on the basis it would damage Australia's international relations. No kidding. Dr. Darling sought a review and the material was finally released to him late last year. The files include a comprehensive memo Sir McFarlane wrote for the Defence Department in 1947 in which he said Australia should develop biological weapons that would work in tropical Asia without spreading to Australia's more temperate population centres. Specifically to the Australian situation, the most effective counter-offensive to threatened invasion by overpopulated Asiatic countries would be directed towards destruction by biological or chemical means of tropical food crops and the dissemination of infectious disease capable of spreading in tropical but not under Australian conditions, Sir McFarlane Burnett said. The Victorian-born immunologist who headed the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research won the Nobel Prize for Medicine in 1960. He died in 1985, but his theories on immunity and clonal selection provided the basis for modern biotechnology and genetic engineering. You see, it's the same groups, same people, as the ones I've mentioned in the last few nights, all working together. On December 24, 1946, the Secretary of the Department of Defense, F.G. Shedden, wrote to McFarlane Burnett saying Australia could not ignore the fact that many countries were conducting intense research on biological warfare and inviting him to a meeting of top military officers to discuss the question. The minutes of a meeting on January 1947 reveal that Sir McFarlane argued that Australia's temperate climate could give it a significantly military advantage. The main contribution of local research so far as Australia is concerned might be to study intensively the possibilities of biological warfare in the tropics against troops and civil populations and civil populations at a relatively low level of hygiene and with correspondingly high resistance to the common infectious diseases. In other words, they were finding ways to destroy your immune system because people who are at low level of hygiene and they would have also had correspondingly high resistance to common infections. The idea, the speciality of guys like Mr. Burnett, was to cause autoimmune problems. Big Pharma working with the military industrial establishment. They always work together. The two always work t- together. 
September 1947, Sir McFarlane was invited to join a chemical and biological warfare subcommittee of the New Weapons and Equipment Development Committee. He prepared a secret report titled Note on War from a Biological Angle, suggesting that biological warfare could be a powerful weapon to help defend a thinly populated Australia. Sir McFarlane also urged the government to encourage universities, should always use universities, to research those branches of biological science that had special bearing on biological warfare. A clinically scientific approach is evident in a note he wrote in June 1948. He said a successful attack with a microbiological agent on a large population would have such a devastating impact that its use was extremely unlikely while both sides were capable of retaliation. The main strategic use of biological warfare may well be to administer the coup de grace to a virtually defeated enemy and compel surrender in the same way that the atomic bomb served in 1945. Its use has a tremendous advantage of not destroying the enemy's industrial potential, which can then be taken over intact. Overt biological warfare might be used to enforce surrender by psychological rather than direct destructive measures. Think about today with all this hype about a non-existent flu. The minutes of a meeting at Melbourne's Victoria Barracks, the military barracks, in 1948 noted that Sir McFarlane was of the opinion that if Australia undertakes work in this field, it should be on the the tropical offensive side. Offensive, that's first strike, right? Rather than defensive. There was very little known about biological attack on tropical crops. After visiting the UK in 1950 and examining the British Chemical and Biological Warfare Research effort, Sir McFarlane told the committee that the initiation of epidemics among enemy populations had usually been discarded as a means of waging war because it was likely to rebound on the user. They've got to have the antidotes, you see. They do have them today. In a country of low sanitation, the introduction of an exotic intestinal pathogen, such as by water contamination introducing into the water, might initiate widespread dissemination, he said. These are wonderful people, you know, and they're, they're sirs, you know, and lords and stuff like that. And the, they give you your vaccines too, by the way. The vaccine parts are side hobby. Introduction of yellow fever into a country with appropriate mosquito vectors might build up into a disabling epidemic before control measures were established. This is what he said. The subcommittee recommended that the possibilities of an attack on the food supplies of Southeast Asia and Indonesia using biological warfare agents should be considered by a small study group. In 1951, it recommended that a panel reporting to the Chemical and Biological Warfare Subcommittee, and by the way, that's, that's all the British Commonwealth that were involved in this, the Biological Warfare Subcommittee should be authorized to report on the offensive potentiality of biological agents likely to be effective against the local food supplies of Southeast Asia and Indonesia. Dr. Dorling said that while Sir McFarlane was a great Australian, oh boy, was he ever, he was also a product of times when many Australians held deep fears about more, about more populous Asian countries. He said the Menzies government was more interested in trying to acquire nuclear weapons. Fortunately, this also proved impractical, and Australia never acquired a weapon of mass destruction. So, it's quite something. Now, when you go in, as I say, to uh, the early life of Mr. Burnett, it says here, 
he was a manager of his, his, his father and so on. But it says when he went to, to school, he read biology articles in the chambers of St. Pierre, which introduced him to the work of Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin was one of his heroes. He was educated at Victorian state schools and later won a full scholarship to board and study at Geelong College. And but then he went to the University of Melbourne and he read more of Darwin's work, and it says here in Wikipedia, and was influenced by the ideas of science and society. If you read that book, I've gone through with you on the air. It's a totalitarian regime. is to bring in a scientific dictatorship, a massive depopulation. It's the eugenics program. He says he was, he was um, greatly influenced by the ideas of science and society in the writings of H.G. Wells. See, it's always the same group, see? And he goes on further again to talk about uh, when he worked with the British and their bacterial warfare departments. Interestingly enough, by the way, I mentioned bacteriophages a while back that the, the Soviets had. And in 1926, this Mr. Burnett was working on bacteriophages. You see, the elite have been using bacteriophages to kill viruses for themselves for an awful long time. But it's not ever going to be made to, available to the public. I've got the link on my site. You go into the archive section, you'll see bacteriophages. Uh, look it up, and uh, there's actually a video uh, link for it up on the web, uh, and you'll see. But here they are, 1926, they, were, they were already had bacteriophages. And then you see all the, all the other things he was involved in. He identified Staphylococcus aureus, and toxin, antitoxin. You see what I'm saying? If, when you're involved in all of that, you think they're all doing this for medical, good medical reasons. You've got to understand they're all part of the military-industrial complex because the first project and where the money goes is in warfare purposes. Anything else is a side effect. And these are the guys who give you your vaccinations. These are the guys who make up what's in your vaccinations, and they want to depopulate the planet. And I'm kidding you not. It's so evident today. They've said it openly. Go into the Optimum Population Trust. Go into the speeches by, by, by Prince Charles. Go into all these site links I gave yesterday on one of my uh, talks. Go into that link with all the different ones I've talked about. Depopulation, zero population growth, etc. And how they change their names to sound more friendly. They were scaring the public. Amazing. But again, Burnett's speciality was in was in um, immunology and why people would have immune, autoimmune problems. But obviously, you find out how to create the autoimmune problems. You see, if you create autoimmune problems, you can be wide open to simple infections that normally wouldn't harm you and end up killing you. You've got to understand this. You've got to understand what's really going on. Got to. Now, I'll go to the callers now, and there's Sylvia in New York. Are you there, Sylvia? Hi, Mr. Watt. Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, this is sort of off topic from uh, Mr. Burnett, but uh, since Ted Kennedy died this week, and it occurred to me earlier tonight, I'm wondering if you have an opinion as to why JFK managed to get elected to the office of the presidency. Um, given that I don't think he was a CFR member, 
or even a Bilderberger or trilateralist? Um, do you think it was just his father's influence, uh, given there was no black box voting back then? Mm-hmm. And, I, uh, I think it was, it was his father's influence. When Joseph Kennedy, uh, uh, during World War II, he, I don't even know if people really realized it, he was put to Oliver's ambassador to, to Britain during World War II, and he lived in Buckingham Palace with the Queen. They were that close. They were really in tight with the establishment. And I think that, uh, I think that um, they thought that the sons would all uh, toe the line. They were, they were born with silver spoons in their mouth. And, uh, and of course, one became aberrant, maybe had a bit of conscience, and started to say certain things that perhaps weren't too wise. One of his big talks he gave was about America being run by secret societies and by that he meant the Council on Foreign Relations Trilateral Commission and so on National Press Club that's right. right and that really was the downfall because it was the first time anybody of import at that level had ever said such a thing in public and, and right. the, the people hadn't even heard of these organizations before and one other quick question I apologize um, in your opinion, now this is solely your own personal opinion, do you believe that we are looking at a potential civil war in the United States or just um, that we may be taken down without a shot, I mean, in terms of just being taken down by biological warfare, as you've been discussing tonight. Mm-hmm. It's more than just uh, biological warfare. That could certainly certainly be uh, something that's released. Um, but we've been taken down without firing a shot over since the 1960s, 50s, actually. And uh, <clears throat> the whole culture is destroyed. Um, the public have been trained incrementally to adapt and adapt and adapt into a whole new system of accepting a governance. They don't think much about politics, most people. They don't, they don't really question much. They, they subconsciously accept they're simply um, under some sort of governance. And they've been taught to obey all authorities. They've been taught even more with all the taserings going on. That's to terrify the public uh, uh, not to disobey a cop's order. Right. Um, so there's many ways to take the country down, and you've got to create a state of apathy. Uh, that has been done. So Lord Bertrand Russell said towards the end they would have to introduce massive apathy. So you've got unemployment, you're very scared stiff about right. keeping a job, uh, keeping, uh, keeping their rent paid or their mortgage paid right. as people lose houses and so on. Uh, we're kept busy and, and frustrated and anxious. Um, that's all right. part of the creating an application of apathy. Uh, and meanwhile, the massive media propaganda campaigns uh, are, are really indoctrinating them uh, and treating them just the same way as Pavlov would treat animals, training you'd be terrified of a coming flu that really doesn't exist. And what's even more important, um, as I say, too, the World Health Organization dropped three or four of its criteria they needed to, to, call, to call something a pandemic. They simply dropped the classifications so they could get this through as a pandemic. But um, this massive uh, attempt at uh, compulsory inoculation is the last bastion because your body is the, is the only thing you've got left. They're already trying to get into your mind. They have all your data because of all your information. And when you allow governments to have authority over your body and what they're going to stick in it, whether it's a dagger, a taser, or a bullet, or an injection, these are all intrusive actions. And you can't allow that to start because... I've got the document from the World Health Organization from their meeting, the World Meeting in 2006, and they say right in there that uh, if once they get the public uh, conditioned that they must get a shot, they're going to get shots every year 
for various other things and booster shots every year for all the, pre- the other diseases. So this, is a, this is the start of a training exercise, and I guarantee you, too, they do want to bring the population down. They won't all die at once, but uh, we know from the polio vaccines that the, the simian 40 virus causes massive cancer, and it depends on your gene type and your physiology as to when it will actually hit you. So it's nice and spread out, you see. Uh, I don't trust them at all. There's something stinks about all of this. And we've got to say no. Even when they're saying now they're going to start finding people $1,000 a day if they refuse it. Right. Well, I mean, so it'll be like Germany. First they came for the communists. I said nothing. Oh. Then they came for the socialists. I said nothing. I mean, you know, yep. it's that kind that's, of apathy. That's correct. They've destroyed family. They've, they've destroyed the cohesion of family. You have what Bertrand Russell said they'd do. You have egocentric people who literally spin around in their own little environment uh, working for pleasure in their spare time and they can't bond with other people and if you can't bond, you don't really bond, so you're selfish uh, then no one's going to stand up as a group and say that's it right. you see, this is all a long term strategy of takedown and uh, they're right there now Yeah. very disheartening <laughs> thank is. you, thank you Mr. Watt, I appreciate it I appreciate everything you do and by the way my husband's online tonight and with PayPal and offering a donation So uh, I would appreciate that thank you, <laughs> have thank a good night call. you too and here's a break coming up but uh, yeah, people don't realize how bad it is we'll be under attack for an awful long time Back with more after these messages. Hi, folks. This is Alan Watt, and we're cutting through the matrix. Now, remember what Quigley said. He said... The Council on Foreign Relations, Royal Institute of International Affairs, uh, are often mistaken uh, with their policies as being communist. And then he said, but they do share the same values. What it is, he's talking about the Fabian socialism. That's what it is. Where elitists and experts and scientists will control the public through agencies and bureaucracies. And they'll control you from birth to death. Uh, and, of course, they set up the communist system as the fastest way for some countries to have a revolution and standardize them all together into the same types of system, knowing they would merge them with the, the West further down the road. That came out in the Rees Commission when the Congress investigated the tax-free, uh, tax-exempt foundations. But to, to show you how the communists work, the communist system. Remember that plank where you'd have the redistribution of wealth. Well, that's what the UN was set up partly to do, but it's also the big stick in many other areas, including your health. This article here from BBC News, 27th of August, 2009, climate protection to cost more. Now, that's the guise for bringing us all into servitude under a a, a socialist, communistic-style system across the planet. Richard Black, it says... Protecting societies against the impacts of climate change will be much more expensive than previously believed, according to a new analysis. In 2007, the UN Climate Convention came up with a sum of 49 to $171 billion per year. The new report says the UN sums omitted important factors and the true cost will be two to three times higher than $171 billion per year. Developing nations want rich countries 
to provide major sums for adaptation as part of the new United Nations climate deal due to be agreed in Copenhagen in December. Amazing, eh? Where's the democracy in this? Who comes to you and asks you for more of your tax dollars? Huh? For this? You see, it's, we are under governance. It's nothing to do with, your, with voting people in. That's long gone. We don't vote in the UN and, tell, and ask the UN or tell them what to do. They're telling us what to do. And every country, every politician at the top signs this into treaty, which makes it law, the law of the land and lands. So the amount of money on the table at Copenhagen is one of the key factors that will determine whether we achieve a climate change agreement. Let's say that's just a bogus for, for the distribution of wealth. That means you, your wealth, even if you're, you, th- you, you know you're poor, it doesn't matter that you're still classified as wealthy as long as you can get more taxes out of you. This is the world of servitude we're going into, as the Royal Institute of International Affairs said, and that's what your voluntary servitude for the, for the youngsters is all about, training them from a very young age. So it says, uh, said leader or, uh, Martin Parry, a visiting research fellow with the Grantham Institute for Climate Change at Imperial College London. Another institute, you see. Professor Parry co-chaired the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. These are the only scientists that are on board because they all get their paychecks off this whole scam of climate change at the IPCC at the United Nations. The new report issued under the aegis of the International Institute for Environment and Development and the Grantham Institute says that some aspects of the UN estimates were wrong by a factor of more than 100. Boy, we're really going to spend out. As well as giving her clothes off her backs too. Maybe they'll leave you a little computer or something you can text message on or watch porn or at least leave your TV so you can watch the funnies. You know, because that's where most folk are. They haven't a clue what's going down. From Hamish myself in Ontario, Canada, it's good night. I mean, your gods or your gods go with you.